Any question time? Okay, in regards to that quickly. Oh, right. Uh, okay. What do you do if someone starts talking to you? Now, obviously, <coughs> someone started talking to someone here about that. What do you do in an instant like that? Well, when I was told that one the other day, I just said, oh, sounds a bit unlikely to me. I think, you know, sort of like, certainly have an attitude of taking it absolutely with a piece of salt. Although the idea of God showing someone in advance when someone's going to die, I mean, that itself is, is should, that should make everyone here suspicious, something like that. Examine it, all right? We had a situation where there's a guy, all right, the Lord's man, old Roger, he had throat cancer. Now, throat cancer is terminal. There was prayer for healing. Obviously, everyone wanted him to be healed. For whatever reason, God did not heal him. He went home to be with the Lord. Now, in an instance like that, now, just ask yourself, why on earth would God want to tell someone? I mean, obviously, the Lord knew that Roger wasn't going to be healed. Obviously, the Lord knows everything. <laughs> All right? So why would God want to tell someone else to go and tell his friends that we know the date he's going to die on? You know, I can you see common sense common sense. So I suppose that the point is with something like that, I mean, just, you know, probably best to say, oh, well, it doesn't sound very likely to me. I mean, take it with a pinch of salt. If it's the old kind of poison talk, because that wasn't exactly poison, that was just silly rumour, people trying to be spiritual. Um, but when it's poison talk, just say, sorry, not interested. You know, not interested. Unless you can bring me the truth, I don't want to know. So, I, you know, I think that's probably the best thing to do. But, but just scotch it, you know. I mean, with some things it doesn't matter, does it? But, I mean, with things like this that we're talking about, it does matter. And, um, you know, so certainly get in the habit, for heaven's sake, start taking what Christians say with a pinch of salt. We take ourselves too seriously. And when people start, when you hear the phrase, the Lord's told me, will you please be suspicious? Just instinctively, automatically, let the onus be on them to prove that God has told them something. Is he? Don't, for heaven's sake, you know, be gullible and, oh, so-and-so said the Lord said so-and-so and such and such. It's so silly. It's so silly. And incidentally, Roger France, the elder that Blinda spoke to today, sorry, John France, the elder that she spoke to today, said that throughout the time of the illness, all right, they said that every day, because Roger Price was well known, every day they had Christians phoning from here, there and everywhere, the Lord's told us to tell you this, the Lord's told us to tell you that, and, and he said, quite frankly, it did nothing but simply stir up all the difficult feelings that they were already having to cope with. And, uh, you know, so, you know, this God's told me to tell you, Oh dear, let's really knock it on the head. And try and get other, you know, people who we know, our Christian friends who aren't in this fellowship, who don't get teaching. Let's very gently try and be a bit of an influence on them about it. You know, don't be afraid. You know, when somebody says, either the Lord has told me, or if somebody says, the Lord told so-and-so, don't be frightened to say, how do you know? They'll be stumped. They'll be stumped. So, you know, don't be afraid to do that. The, you know, the more we get out of this habit of God's told me this, that and the other, the better. Causes nothing, well, in a situation like Roger Price 
and his church and of course his wife and his children they're still there they're still living with it he's gone home to be with the Lord they're still living with it alright look at the heartbreak the hurt that that can cause believe it or not there were people in this fellowship now they're not here now alright last year okay when Robert was diagnosed with the cancer I had people phoning me up with visions confirming that Robert was going to go home to be with the Lord I just told them not to be so stupid Fortunately, they've gone. <laughs> yeah, but Barrister, don't you think that, I mean, a lot of the time, if someone says something like that, if, if no one is going to benefit, then you know that it's not really God. Mm. This is exactly no the benefit, point. Yeah, I mean, if, you exactly. Know that someone's going to die on a particular day, I know. Benefit Absolutely nobody. That's right. Precisely. It's pointless guidance. And God doesn't give pointless guidance. You know, silly guidance is not of God, it's one of the tests. If it's silly, it's not of God. <laughs> and just um, to remind ourselves of what we do about the gifts of the Spirit, um, and we've had teaching on this, which is pretty clear, but we need to remind ourselves to test all things. And uh, when we have a prophecy, we have the last prophecy tonight, that all prophecy must be tested, because we only prophesy in part anyway, that's what the Word of yeah. God says. And just chew it over, Compare it with what you know of scripture. If in doubt, you can word with the uh, verse with yourself or anyone else talk about it. But don't just swallow anything that anyone comes up with, thus saith the Lord. We want to be make sure that we do what scripture says, and that is <coughs> test everything. Test it, check it, weigh it, what we weigh it against against the word of God as we know it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, someone I knew I still know actually. Uh, once got sort of gave out loads of little things like that for me and and June. And June. Mm. One of them was that we were going to both be youth leaders in our church. Mm. No way is that going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. I mean, it's never happened since. Mm. That was almost two years ago. Yeah. Well, half years ago now. Oh yeah. Be be know, very. Yeah, be very suspicious of guidance coming out of the blue through third parties. Now, God may well use third parties in a confirmatory way, you know, to confirm things. But even then, that's got to happen two or three times. You know, but I mean, God does not march up to someone through a third party and then lay a bit of fresh guidance on them that they didn't know anything about until that person came up to them. You know, it's absolute... Folly, the, absolute the folly. The person who is ill, mm -hmm. ever heard that, it upset him greatly. I should think if someone was turned around, I mean, yeah. people was talking about him, mm. one day he was actually going to die. Yeah. It, yeah. It yeah. Really oh, yeah. That's the second thing about guidance. No, that, it never yeah. happened. That never well, happened. That's the whole point. I've yeah. It never happened. It's only after. Yeah. I mean, four years have passed now, and people are starting yeah. to say these things. They didn't say it at the time. Oh, it, it never happened. oh yeah, that that never happened. But yeah. now, it, you it's know, like everything he said filters back to them at Chichester. Mm. Everything, and all it does each time is cause another little fresh emotional upset, mm. especially for Ros and the two children yeah. behind. Like he said he's got to be left to rest. That he's with yeah, the Lord that's, that's right. So and one thing is. with Roger, I'll come on to you, George, don't worry. I'm getting there, I'm getting there, you've got the stage. But one other thing in regards to this, in regards to the fact that old Rog died, let's just accept it's a mystery. Mm -hmm. Let's not try and ask, why didn't the Lord do this? Why didn't the Lord do that? I'll tell you, if the Lord wanted us to know, he'd have told, well, not us, it's none of our business. 
If the Lord had wanted anyone to know, he would have told Ros first, and then the elders, and then the fellowship. And he hasn't. So, you know, and believe me, you might as well try and work out pi to the last digit. It's impossible. If God doesn't reveal it, we don't know, and there's no point guessing, or, or perhaps it was this, perhaps it was that. You know, it's just no point, it's pointless, because whatever theory you come up with, there is no possible way to know whether it was right or not. So therefore, it's best to just, you know, it's a mystery, shall not the God of the earth do right? That's, 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 that's what the Bible says. George? I was just thinking what you were just saying there, actually, and I was just thinking that God would lay on your heart, and you would get a witness, if that was going to edify somebody, hmm. or build them up, then the Holy Spirit would reveal to you, in that particular area, if, if the Lord was giving you that particular one. Hmm. If it's not, and it's causing problems, it's got to be of the flesh, isn't hmm. it? And it's got to be so stupid hmm. that it causes That's so right. many upsets, hmm. and it, it breaks so many Christian churches up today, isn't it? Hmm. This is what's, what's doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's the presumption of Christians feeling they've got this hotline to God. Mm. That's the problem. That's the problem. This idea of a hotline to God. Mm. And uh, you know, remember, we're not saying God doesn't speak. He does speak. But the problem isn't God speaking. The problem is us being deceived. And that is why everything has got to be tested so carefully, so very, very carefully. And. Uh, Right, well, if, if that's out of the way, or even if people want to carry that on, but uh, a chance for questions. Yes, George. Yes, I knew, I knew you did, really. I saw it in your beard, uh, in your eye. <laughs> actually, I've been reading this book, and, and I tell you, I really got thrown off, actually. Right, of course. Uh, spiritual warfare. Right. And uh, Ephesians chapter 6, yep. on the full armour of God. Right. And I... Uh, uh, I'm glad that you'll be able to focus on something that bit more long. Yeah, oh. I've always been under the impression that the Bible says that we put on, we put on the full of God. Yeah. And this writer is given to understand right the way through and saying, it's no good you doing it, you need to ask the Lord to put it on. And that completely threw me because, in actual fact, everything we do is by faith. Mm. We're told to do it. Mm. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's something that we have to do. Right. Uh, flying, uh, I, I, I'm a bit risky, so I Oh, right. Which one is it? Is that the Michael Harper one, Spiritual Warfare? Uh, the Michael Harper book? Uh, no, it isn't Michael Harper. Oh, right. It's American, actually. Oh, right. Ah, oh, that explains it. That will throw you. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so in regards to this passage, I mean, we'll read through it in a few minutes, but it's the kind of passage where the immediate problem isn't people misinterpreting what the passage is, it's misinterpreting the whole point of it, you see. Now, I've known people, there are books that have been written, and I know people that what they do is literally every morning when they get up, they literally go through the physical motions of putting the armour of God on. You can see what I mean? They put the old belt on and they claim it in faith and stuff like that. Now, this is to kind of, I think, miss the idea of what's happening here. Because, of course, what is the whole of our life if we follow the Lord. It's acting in faith and trust on what the Lord has commanded through his word that we do. It's finally acting on the truth. No more and no less. But of course it's acting on the truth knowing that we cannot do it. That it has to be the Lord through us or it's not going to happen at all. Only the Lord can fulfill in us what he has said he wants 
from us. Now, if we go through this, all right, all that Paul is doing is he's saying, look, you're in a spiritual warfare. You've got a foe, all right. Now, I don't know if you know who your worst enemy is. Who'd like to tell me who their worst enemy is? I know who mine is. That's right, well done, well done. Oh, I like that, yeah. I'm my worst foe, all right. Not Satan. I just chuck that in because loads of Christians think that Satan is the worst enemy they've got. No, they are. We have to be very sure about that. Satan can only at the best capitalise on our own sinfulness, that's all. He can simply suggest, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you did that, as it were. But that apart, yeah, we've got a foe. There's a spiritual warfare going on, all right? And we were talking quite a bit about this last week as well, weren't we? Now, what Paul is saying here is that because we are one with Jesus, because Jesus lives in us, therefore we have access to everything that is needed because Jesus is in us, we have access to all that we need in able to withstand what Satan does against us. Now, if we just go through it, I think you'll get the idea that when Paul is talking about armour here, you see, what he's doing, he wrote this, you know, to the Ephesians from prison, all right? He was under arrest, and he was under house arrest. Now, what that meant in Rome... <laughs> is that you were literally chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. The soldier changed, <laughs> obviously, but you were chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. All right. So wherever the soldier went, you went, but it was more a case the soldier, they just stayed in the cell with you. All right. So Paul has had a certain amount of time when, I mean, all he's got to do is sit and look at whatever soldier it is. You can't really identify a soldier. The whole idea of armour or uniform is that they all look the same. So the only thing he's really taking in is the actual armour. And in actual fact, this here, what he writes, is based on the armour that Roman soldiers wore at that particular time. And so what's he doing? He's talking about the fact that there's a spiritual warfare, all right, you know, that Satan's around and that we've got to be on our guard against him. And so, in effect, what he does is, oh yeah, that's a good idea, isn't it? And so he simply goes through the soldier's armour using each to illustrate what the Lord wanted them to understand. So, what we're talking about here is not putting on some literal spiritual armour in that sense. Can you see? It's a picture that Paul is using to get across absolute truth, but it is just a picture if you see what I mean. I mean, it's like we know that the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, and we'll be on to that in a few minutes. But, I mean, no one believes it is actually a literal sword. Can you see? But calling the Word of God a sword perfectly describes what God is able to do through it. Cut you to shreds if need be. All right, that's what the Word of God does. You know, when the Gospel hits people who aren't right with Him, it cuts them to shreds. All right? It makes them know they're guilty. It makes them realise that they've got to get right with their God. So therefore, the idea of taking the word of God and calling it a sword is a good one. But of course, it's not a literal sword in any way. It's a, it's a picture language here. Now let's actually go through it. He says, finally. Now, 
He's put the finally there, all right, because he's halfway through chapter six, <laughs> all right. So he's had six and a half chapters. I mean, not that he wrote in chapters. The Bible originally was not split up into chapter and verses. That came later, much later. But Paul is kind of halfway through chapter six. And really, in Ephesians, what he's been doing basically is he's just been reminding them of what the truth is now that they are following Jesus. That they are one with Jesus, that Jesus is Lord of everything, that he's high and lifted up, that the name of Jesus is over every name, alright? So Satan is under his feet. Now therefore, if we're raised up with Christ, Satan is under our feet. And he's been saying that Jesus has provided everything that is needed in order for us to be progressively set free from the power of sin in our lives and for Jesus to reveal himself through us in all his glory. Now that is basically what Paul, you know, and, you know, he's kind of ended up and remember that what does it all boil down to? You know, the, you know, these great, this is what Jesus has done and it's all fantastic and spiritual, and it is. But what does it boil down to? Well, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, be good to your children. Don't make them angry. Can you see, if it doesn't boil down to that nitty, you know, nitty-gritty daily life, it's worthless. So Paul has covered all that, okay, and then, having done all that, he says, finally. So this really is the postscript, all right? It's not that this is what everything was leading up to, or anything like that, because he's dealt with everything they needed to know about what Jesus has done, but he's just said, and don't forget, lads, don't forget the devil, right? Because he's all the time going to be trying to trip you up. So he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, firstly, let's see there that Paul is not saying that Christians are to be strong. Now, the reason that the Bible doesn't say that Christians ought to be strong is for the simple reason, well, I mean, you can be strong, you can lift weights, or you can be strong-willed, but all of that is useless to God. That's of no consequence to God himself. Remember, Paul said, when I am weak, I am strong. In fact, God, actually, this strength we have in ourselves, I'm, you know, I can do this, I can do that, this general sense of capability that we have, God is actually working in us to get us free of that. God wants us to know our helplessness. Not how strong we are, not how capable we are, but before him, and when it comes to doing his work, how completely helpless we are. So here, Paul does not say that they've got to be strong. What he says is be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now can you see that's slightly different, isn't it? Paul is not saying be strong super duper Christians. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul knew that he was weak and he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. For the simple reason that as he knew his weakness and his helplessness, then he trusted Jesus. As long as he trusted himself, he wasn't trusting Jesus. You've got two choices. Choose whom you will trust, yourself or Jesus. But you can't trust both of both at the same time. Our trust is either in ourselves or in Jesus. Now, Paul knew what it was to be made weak by God, and therefore Paul was looking to Jesus to be strong in him. Not strong in himself, but looking to Jesus. God is the strength of my heart.
Not our hearts are strong, but God is the strength of our heart, all right? So Paul reminds them of that. He says, look, be strong in God. And they knew perfectly well that they were strong in God only to the extent they were weak in themselves, is he? Now, when we're strong, God has to deal with us. He has to make us weak. This strength must be the Lord's strength. And then he says, put on the whole armour of God. So he's saying, you've got to be strong in the Lord's strength. It's not your strength. But then he says, put on the armour of God. Now, this is something that we must do. Now, it's something that we must do because God has already done whatever is needed in us in order for us to do it. Can you see? Jesus is there, ready and waiting to do this the moment that we act in obedience to what the Lord is saying to us. So he says, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Let's just read through this now. For we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of the present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, incidentally, you can, if you're prepared to be loose enough in your exegesis, all right, get all manner of kind of hierarchies out of that, with sub-hierarchies, all right? Um, but if you do, you're going way beyond what the Bible actually says there. Yes, sure, principalities may be stronger than powers, who knows? But on the other hand, it might just be Paul saying, you know, using different phrases to describe the same thing. So be careful of these teachings that has carefully has all the evil spirits graded. There's no doubt that there are grades in that realm, the same as there are amongst the goody angels, all right? But don't press too much into that. You know, sometimes you get Christians saying now, uh, are we casting a principality out here, or are we up against a power? Um, are we uh, against a world ruler, or have we got a spiritual host of wickedness? You know, can you see, it's a kind of more general description. Now, there may be a hint in there of layers of authority, no problem with that. But can you see what I mean? Don't take it too far, okay? The basic point is what he's saying, look, our battle isn't with flesh and blood. It's not finally with people. It's not with human beings. This battle, now our battle with sin is with human beings. It's with us, <laughs> all right? My battle against sin is with a human being. His name's Beresford, okay? <laughs> but here, Paul's talking about spiritual warfare. Not the whole of Christian life, one aspect of it. He's talking here simply about the aspect of when the Christian comes up against Satan and evil spirits trying to hinder him in his Christian life. That is the sum total of what Paul's saying here. It's one aspect of the Christian life, and that's all. And he says here, you're up against Satan, so you've got to know what weapons Satan uses, and you've got to know how to counter them. Okay. So he says, therefore, take the whole armour of God. Not a bit of it, all of it, okay. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now, we'll go through the actual bits of armour shortly, but I just want to show you something else here. Let's see the language. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Therefore, take the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Now, when we go through the armour, all right, 
Some people say there's only one offensive weapon bit of this armour, and it's the sword. But in actual fact, that's not correct. In the Greek, it's not just any old word for sword. It's the specific word for the dagger, the small dagger that the soldiers had. Not their sword, their small dagger, so that should they be in a position of having someone eyeball to eyeball and really being attacked like that, they could whip it out in the ribs. The dagger is a defensive weapon here. You don't go after someone with a little dagger. <laughs> you use your sword for that. All right? But, when, but if someone sets on you, it's taking you so much by surprise that they're too close for you to even get your sword out, it's the dagger you use. So what that tells us is this armour is purely a defensive one. It is not offensive in any way at all. Now, the Roman soldiers had offensive bits to their armour. I know other people have got offensive bits. But, you know, some people are just offensive, aren't they? But the Roman armour, they certainly had attack mode stuff. But the only bits that Paul refers to here are the defensive bits. It's defence mode. So what we see here is that Paul, and he says that you may stand against, that you may withstand. He's talking here, alright, in actual fact, not so much about the whole aspect of let's get out there and attack Satan and get our land back from him. Now, there is truth in that. That is another aspect of the Christian life, yeah, to be on the offensive, if you like, against Satan. But that is not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about how Christians withstand when Satan attacks them. It is that limited aspect of spiritual warfare he's dealing with here, all right? In another place, in Corinthians, you've got the passage when he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but they're powerful to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, in that passage, that is Paul dealing with when Christians attack Satan. And we know that for the simple reasons that what happens there is that you've got the picture of the stronghold and the stronghold, they were fortresses in various places. And the idea that fine, I mean, some famous attacks in the ancient world on strongholds were that literally they pulled the strongholds down bit by bit. You know, they practically built scaffolding up them. And they knocked the walls down systematically bit by bit. It was a long old hall, all right. But that's what Paul is talking about there. That is when the Lord is leading us in attack against Satan praying for people who aren't converted, etc, etc. I heard a lovely one once, some time ago, and uh, some Christians, they realised that a brothel had opened down their street, you see, and they weren't very happy about this. And so they set to praying, you know, and sort of like they knew that finally the problem with that brothel is that, you know, Satan was behind things like that. And so what they did is they started praying against what Satan was doing in their road through that brothel, all right. And that I don't know how long went past, it might have been weeks, it might have been months, I'm honestly not sure. But one day, and significantly, when no one was in there, you know, everyone was out, all the prostitutes were out somewhere, it, it blew up. There was a gas explosion, all right. Now, now, that is attacking Satan, can you see? But that isn't what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about when we defend, when Satan attacks us. So, let's actually, so he says, stand 
withstand and resist. Now the idea here is simply that, that you're already standing in place. And this is Satan trying to knock you over. Can you see that? Paul is not telling them here to do anything except to make sure that Satan doesn't knock them over. That's the sum total here. He says stand. So you've got Satan trying to knock you over. Alright, because you're standing in Jesus. And Paul is saying there's no need for you to get knocked over. So I'm going to show you how it is you can draw on Jesus in order to make sure that Satan doesn't knock you over, you see. Let's actually go through it. So he says, stand therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Alright, now there's a couple of things there. Uh, this is the belt, alright? Now, on the Roman soldiers, they had a belt, and it was more like a utility belt, alright? And they had all their gadgets, you know, including their little defensive dagger on it. So this belt included various important bits <laughs> that they needed, you know, dangling from it, as it were. And this belt contained them. So without the belt, the belt in some ways was the basis, the foundation of the armour. And for instance, you had the breastplate, it clipped into the belt. So the point is, if you went up to a, road, you know, a soldier in Rome, 2,000 years ago, if you could have got this girdle off him, the rest of his armour would have just fallen to bits. Can you see? This was the foundation of the actual armour. Okay. And what is it? It's truth. It's truth. The foundation of the way in which we withstand Satan when he tries to knock us down is truth. Now why is that? Well I'll tell you, Satan is the father of lies. God the Father is the one true God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Holy Spirit, as Jesus called him, is the spirit of truth. And the truth is that Satan is under our feet. That is the truth. The Bible could not make that clearer. When someone becomes a Christian, when someone is born again, they immediately have the same authority over Satan that Jesus has, because Jesus has given it to them. Immediately they come under the authority of Jesus, which means they have the delegated authority of Jesus over Satan. So the truth is that for a Christian, Satan is under their feet. Now, I don't know if you've ever stood on someone for a while, you know, perhaps some of you in your dark days in the school playground when you got into fights. But it seems to be rather the truth that if you're standing on someone, they can't push you over. Now, I know this from experience. I, I used to got, get trodden on a lot in the playground, and believe me, when people were standing on me head, I did not push them over. Now, so the truth of the matter is that if Satan is under your feet, there's no way he can knock you over. But Satan wants to knock you over. So how's he going to do it? Well, I'll tell you. He's got to try and convince you that he's not under your feet and that he can knock you over. Is he? The only way Satan can get your foot off his head is to try and bluff you into taking it off. Now, when you're looking to Jesus, when you're trusting Jesus, you know your foot is on Satan's head. But if Satan can convince you it's not, and you look away from Jesus, and you start worrying, oh, Satan, you know, blah, 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 and you start worrying, 
be anxious in nothing. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. That's what the Bible says. Immediately you're out of fellowship, aren't you? <laughs> you see? You're no longer under the authority of Jesus in that area of your life because you're in sin against him. You've stopped trusting him. Your foot is not on Satan's neck in that area of life. Up he, up, up he pops to try and push you over. Can you see? So all Satan can do is to bluff and he does it with lies. I mean, for instance, if you're standing on someone's head, right? now, if they had the gift of the gab, and if you weren't very intelligent, they might be able to convince you that you haven't got your foot on their head. I mean, you have. They're saying, no, you haven't got your foot on my head, really, you see. And they're trying to convince you. Now, if you believe them, do you know what you'll do? You'll take your foot off their head. They oh no, I haven't got my foot on their head, have I? And while you're scratching your, your head, and you've taken your foot off their head, they're up. Can you see? Now, that is the only power Satan's got over us. It's the power of bluff. It's deception. It is lies. It is getting us to believe things that aren't true, i.e. that Satan is stronger than Jesus. <laughs> All right. You know, that Satan is able to do so much more than he actually is able to do. Satan is a lion, all right, a roaring lion with no teeth on a lead. <laughs> all right. Now, that, that is the truth about Satan. This, if he can persuade you to untie his leash and lend him some dentures, <laughs> you're going to be in trouble. And in effect, that's what Satan tries to do. So, therefore, the foundation of our standing against him is quite simply the truth. And you'll see that this is a constant theme all the way through the armour. So, you've got to be undergirded, you've got to know the truth. Remember, Jesus said, they shall know the truth, and the truth shall set them free. So the whole thing undergirded, and what is the truth? The Word of God. We must constantly make sure we're growing in our understanding of the Word of God, and that we're believing it. Now, I mean, I don't just mean believing it as being fact. But yeah, I mean, Christians believe the Word of God to be fact. You know, in that the Bible says Jesus healed a blind man, and we believe it, it's a fact. And the Bible says that we're raised with Christ in heavenly places, and we believe it as a fact, after all, it's doctrine. But can you see, you can believe just accepting it's a fact. Can you see, the Lord actually wants us to start really believing it in our hearts. Can you see? Really, you know, sort of saying, Lord, really get this truth filtering all the way through me so I can start to live in it, all right? So the whole thing undergirded by truth, and where does truth come from? Jesus said when he was praying to his father before he died in the garden, he said, your word is truth. So feeding on the word of God, get to know the word of God. That's the foundation. And then he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. All right. Now, <clears throat> what we've sort of got here in righteousness is that, I mean, we have none of our own. I mean, we know that, don't we? The Bible says that there is none righteous. No, not one. But because we've come to Jesus, he has shared his righteousness with us. All right? It's been imputed to us. It's been put down to our account. It's rather like someone, all right, say they had a million pounds and they get hold of my bank account number and they go and put their million pounds in my bank account, they have imputed their million pounds to me and now it's mine. But I'm only going to spend it if I realise it's there and if I kind of believe that there isn't a catch to it. Thanks. So, therefore, 
that is what Jesus has done with his righteousness, his holiness, his absolute right standing before God the Father, Jesus has given that to us. Now what does that mean? It means quite simply this, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We are right with God. God has no quarrel with us on the basis of us being sinners. Now, what he might do, he might know we're being naughty here and there, and because he's a father and we're his children, he'll sort us out. Can you see? He'll stop us when we're behaving wrongly. He'll deal with us if we're going against him. But on the issue of the fact that he's a holy God and we're sinners, we are no longer separated from him. We are absolutely at peace with God on that score. Now then, therefore, that is our breastplate. And the breastplate protects all the inner vital organs. And it's for this reason. One of the best ways for Satan to topple us and to get Christians to start falling over is what? It's condemnation. You're no good, you're unworthy, you're a sinner, God doesn't love you. Absolute rubbish. Absolute rubbish. Yes, we are unworthy. Yes, we are sinners. God doesn't love us. Rubbish. He does love us. Can you see? Those things don't fit together. We are sinners, we are worthless, but God loves us. And remember, we've got the righteousness of Christ. Now, if Satan can come along and start putting fears in people's heart about God, about their own father, you know, he's going to get you. Why? Because you're such a dreadful sinner. The whole point is, yes, we are such dreadful sinners, but salvation was bringing dreadful sinners just like us into a relationship with God. That's actually part of the deal. And if Satan comes along and says, oh, how can, how can you feel secure in God? You're a dreadful sinner. Well, that's why you can feel secure in God. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It's because we're worthless sinners that we qualify. It's righteous people who have, you know, who can't feel secure with God. There's no security in God for righteous people. Only for sinners who have repented and been forgiven. And so therefore the breastplate, that which protects all the inner organs in the body, because after all, if you get a sword in your gut, you're in trouble, or an arrow in your gut. I mean, it really goes in. But think about it. Condemnation. Dark forebodings that God has got it in for you, or that maybe you'll lose your salvation. Now, for those of you who's been, who've been through that, now some of you haven't, and, and that's great. Others have. I have. Believe me, it is like... It is like a knife in the gut. It screws you up. It just descends on you like blackness and darkness. And, you know, the breastplate of righteousness is there, quite simply. So that when Satan's trying to do that, we're saying, no, I'm having none of it. It's a lie. There is therefore now no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. And that means me, Satan. Can you see? He might make you feel a bit wobbly about it, but you're not going to take any notice of it at all. And also, in regards to this as well, is that the breastplate of righteousness has to be maintained in the sense that we've got to keep living in confession of sin. We have got to keep those short accounts with God. Remember, if, if we've sinned, and haven't put that right with the Lord, then our relationship with him is hindered to that extent. It's not that you've lost your salvation, nothing like that, but you're out of fellowship with him on a relationship level. Much the way if a husband and wife have a Barney, 
well, they can't expect to carry on as normal afterwards and still, until it's been put right. Now, for us, it's always on our side, not God's. It's always our fault. So, obviously, if we're out of fellowship with God, then don't be surprised that Satan is walking all over you. Can you see? Because our authority over Satan is delegated authority. Satan will be forced to submit to us to the extent we are submitting to Jesus. But if we're not submitting to Jesus, don't expect Satan to be submitting to you. He might, you know, he'll give you an awful time. And the way to stop that awful time, there are two ways. One, you can get right with God, alright, or on the other hand, alright, you can become so rebellious and so out of fellowship with God and so hypocritical going through all the Christian motions that then Satan's demobilized you, you're no harm to him, and so then he'll leave you alone. This is actually what Satan's trying to do all the time. You know, there are two types of peace. There's peace with God, but a lot of Christians, they've got the peace that you get in a graveyard. Can you see, their, their Christian life has wound down and stopped because they've been out of fellowship with God, maybe even over little things, but for so long that Satan's kind of ground them to a halt and they're no threat with him. So he just wants them to keep going to all the meetings and hearing all the nice little sermons because that will help keep them in the position that they're in. All right. And uh, so therefore, the breastplate, okay, we've got to stand absolutely firm against Satan, knowing that the Lord loves us and he accepts us just the way we are. We're forgiven and, you know, therefore Satan isn't going to be able to mow us down with the old condemnation and the guilt and the darkness and the fear of eternal punishment, etc., etc. All right. Okay, so the breastplate of righteousness. And then he says, having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. All right. So I'll read that again. Having shod your feet with the equipment of the gospel of peace. Now that word equipment, it means foundation. All right, foundation. Now we've seen that kind of like, you know, the foundation of the armor is actually the belt, the girdle. Okay. But what Paul is talking about here, he's using the picture of, you know, like, the Christian life is kind of pictured as a walk in the Bible. You know, that day by day you walk with Jesus. You know, so, I mean, you've got the idea of a disciple is someone who's walking with Jesus, and the Christian life is the walk of faith. And so what Paul's doing here is that what he's saying is that our whole Christian lives, okay, the foundation of it, the ground that we're walking on, day by day, all right, is the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. Now, what is Paul underlining there? He's underlining several things. In some translations, you get the idea of readiness to share the gospel. Now, that's, that's, that's there. It's not blatantly there, but it's implied in the Greek. No problem with that. Obviously, in our daily walk, we know that we can share the gospel with others. But, of course, what Paul is really homing in on is he's underlining the fact that Christians have peace with God. Remember, what are we talking about here? We're talking about that aspect of our Christian lives when Satan is attacking you personally as a Christian to knock you over. Can you see, we're talking about personal satanic attack against us. That is the 
area of teaching that Paul is addressing himself to here. And he's underlining again this thing about the gospel of peace. The Greek word for gospel means good news, the good news of peace. You are at peace with God. Because again, what is one of Satan's main attacks? Condemnation. The opposite of being at peace with God. And again and again and again, Satan comes back on that one. It affects some types of Christians more than others. Other types of Christians, Satan comes at, that, at them telling them how wonderful they are. And because they're so arrogant, they believe him. Alright. So, you know, Satan knows best how to attack certain people. But here, Paul is dealing specifically with the whole thing that Satan will come along with his lies and his condemnation. And when that happens, you've got to stand on the truth of the Word of God. Literally walking, the very ground that we walk on is the gospel of peace. Our grounding is that we are right with God and there is nothing that can take that from us. We are right with God. We are children of God. We are inheritors of everything that God has. Because we're good people? No! We're not good people, we're sinners. But precisely because the essence of the Gospel was God finding a way to give bad people a good inheritance of God finding a way where He, in holiness, could have fellowship with us even though we're in sin. And it was all through the death of Jesus. Nothing we did, something Jesus did. We've simply accepted that free gift. But if Satan can attack you at the core of what your salvation is, then my goodness, you will certainly start to be toppled. You will waver, you will be a double-minded man, as it says in James unstable in all your ways. If it's not settled once and for all that you are saved, you've responded to the gospel, the good news, you are going to heaven, God loves you, he accepts you just as you are. Yeah, he's working on us, yeah, he's dealing with us, but he loves and accepts us just the way we are. Unless that is the ground we are walking on, we are going to be all over the place. We are not going to be stable, and we're going to be, become subject to believing every whim that Satan kind of starts throwing around us. So therefore, we're walking all right, on the foundation of the gospel of peace. And what actually is the gospel? What is the good news? Well, it's not what, it's who, it's Jesus. Jesus himself is the ground on which we walk. We are safe in him, underneath are the everlasting arms. Well, you can walk on the everlasting arms as well. Can you see the point? God is above us, he's below us, he's around us. We are totally, 100% secure in him. And we've got to know that. Because if we don't, then Satan, as I say, is going to be knocking us around all over the place. And then he says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. So now he says, above all, above all, he says, you've got to make sure you've got to do this. This is really important. And he talks about the shield of faith. Now the point about the shield all right, is that the shield, they could wave it around. It was on their arm, 
And if they saw something coming at them, a missile, an arrow, or, you know, boiling oil, you name it, you know, perhaps some, some Saxon's head or something, that, you know, that they had the shield and they could move it around, they could surround themselves with this shield. And they were big shields, they could hide completely behind the shield, all right? And so Paul says, make sure that you've got that. And what is the shield? Well, the shield is the shield of faith. Now, what is faith? Well, we're back where we started. Faith is acting on the truth. Jesus is everything we need. That the Word of God is true. How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. That's what Paul says. So therefore, he says, make sure that you're carrying your shield with you all the time. So, what is your shield? That constant attitude of living in trust of the truth of the Word of God. Because what the Bible says is what God says. Therefore, we can trust God. His promises in the Bible are absolutely true and they will, without fail, always come to pass. So we've got this shield of faith, alright? The truth, absolute belief and trust in the truth of the Word of God. And what do you do with it? With which you can quench all the flaming darts of the evil one. Now the picture here is of burning arrows, all right? Sometimes they get these arrows and they sort of dip them in tar or whatever. And not only you've got an arrow coming at you, all right? You know, but you've got a burning one as well. And, uh, you know, sort of a real offensive thing, this. This is really being under attack. And indeed, the Romans, what they did is they used their shield in order to defend themselves from precisely that kind of thing. So in a Roman war, and one of the reasons that the Romans were so good at war was because their tactics were superb. And one of the things that they did is they called it the block, I think, or the blockade or something, and there'd just be all these rows, I think it's 16 by 16, there'd be Roman soldiers. And what would happen was that, obviously, if they're marching on a city or a, or a line and there's all the soldiers there who they want to beat up, what the soldiers would do is that they would just fire arrows and arrows into the air. So there'd be hundreds, thousands of them coming over, landing on you. Now, what the Romans did is they had these whacking great big shields, okay, and they just kept marching forward. Now, obviously, most of the arrows didn't get through because their shield was nice and big. But obviously, some of them did get through and some of the soldiers died. So what happened was, they kept moving forward and every time a particular, no, phalanx, I think it was called, every time that particular, you know, block of men started to go down a bit, another one would move in and it was just wave after wave after wave until the Roman soldiers were outnumbering the arrows that they had left. And so eventually, they could literally break through these lines and beat them up, you know, it's one of the reasons why the Romans were so good at war, their tactics. And so what Paul is saying, look, you need this shield of faith, you've got to be believing the Word of God, because Satan is going to be firing these fiery darts at you, okay, and they're going to be coming from all directions, and you've got to be ready at all times to deal with them. So Paul says this shield is going to quench the flaming darts. And that word quench means to pour water on, to pour cold water on it, Emo you know, neutralize them so they don't get through. You know, they, they bounce off the shield and they're not even burning now. So what have we got? We've got the shield of faith, which is believing the word of God, which is being used to fend off these fiery darts. So if the shield 
if what puts the darts out is faith, believing the word of God, then what are the darts? They're more lies. You see, they're more lies. Now, can you see the point about this armour? Really, Paul is talking about one thing and one thing alone. But he's using the picture of the armour to describe different facets of the same diamond. He's talking about one thing only, the truth of the word of God and Satan's attempt to derail you by getting you to believe things that aren't true. Can you see? The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the foundation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith. And when we go on to the last one, you'll see the point. Can you see? Paul's talking about one thing and one thing only. He's saying Satan will try to deceive you. Satan can only knock you over when he has first deceived you. If only by deceiving you into thinking about whatever that sin is we're thinking about will be nice. Even temptation is a deception, isn't it? Because it's not going to be nice. It's going to result in being out of fellowship with God and then having to humble yourself and repent. I mean, it makes it not so nice, doesn't it? Can you see? So what Paul is saying is simply this. He's saying Satan will try and knock you off guard, alright, by deceiving you. In whatever way he tries, he's going to deceive you. And you've got to have the truth just coming out of your ears. And you've got to be believing that truth. Because then, whatever Satan tries to do against you, it's not going to work. Or when it does work and he does flatten you, you're going to be able to get up real quick. Can you see the point? This is all truth, 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 truth. Let's go on to the last one and you'll finally get the point. Oh, sorry, the last two. And take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. Now, where's the helmet? The helmet on the head. Now, by and large, what does the head represent in that sense? What is the helmet protecting? Brains, yes, yes. Those of you here who have them, <laughs> if you wore a helmet, it is your brain the helmet protects. Now, what does the brain signify? How, thought process, thinking, the mind, exactly. So what have you got to surround your mind with? You've got to surround your mind with the helmet of salvation. The truth that Jesus has saved us. The truth that because we are saved, because we have the Lord now, we are going to be eternally saved throughout the future. There's no room here for fears of the future. Oh, God's going to get me. I might end up in the lake. Of, I might lose my salvation. There's no room for that. Satan. That knocks you over. Have you ever met anyone in fear of losing their salvation who's been useful for the Lord? You haven't. Because they're in fear, all they can think about is their fear. I don't blame them. If I thought I might end up in the lake of fire, it'd be all I could think about. Don't worry about the Lord, it's survival then, pal, isn't it? My goodness, you'd, you'd be obsessed with it. That's what Paul's saying, take the helmet of salvation. Make sure your thinking is whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are honourable, of good report. Those things, the truth of the word of God. 
not condemnation, not the lies of the enemy, not dark forebodings as to what God might do to you when he eventually catches up with you in the future. Not if you're a Christian. No way there is no condemnation for them which are in Christ Jesus. So Paul says you've got to have that helmet of salvation on. Fill your mind with the wonderful truth of your salvation. So that when Satan starts coming along with thoughts of, oh, you know, oh goodness, I might be lost one day. But I say, no, you're not going to be lost. Get that helmet of salvation back on. Is he? Or, or God, God, God is really going to judge me. Get, get the helmet of salvation on. Can you see? Because all that, what does it do? It knocks you over. It knocks you over. Eyes off Jesus, onto self. Worry, worry, worry. Fret, fret, fret. Me, me, me. That's not the Lord, that's Satan, and he's doing it to get your eyes off Jesus so that Jesus is far more limited in what he can do through you than he would be if your eyes were actually on him. So again, just another facet of the same diamond. It's truth. The armour of God, well, the armour of God equals how do we protect ourselves against Satan's attacks? Answer, truth. Therefore, what is the nature of Satan's attacks on us personally if our weapons against them and our armour is truth. The nature of Satan's attack? Lies and deception and deceit. The opposite of the word of God. And then the last one, and this sums it up. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And this is the dagger. And this is the dagger, the defence dagger. So if Satan gets through everything else, you let him have it with this, alright? If he pierces the rest, you give him this in the ribs. And what is it? The Word of God. The Word of God. The Bible. Now this word here for word, I'm going to get confusing now, the word here for word is not the Greek word for written word. It's the Greek word for the spoken word. Shall I say this again? The word for word here is not the word for written word, it's the word for spoken word. That's the word here for word. Right? <laughs> so, what we're... We're not literally saying that the sword of the Spirit is literally the Bible. It's not. Because the sword of the Spirit is the written word of God as spoken or applied. That's the idea of it. Now, obviously, the point is, we get the word of God from here. We can only apply it, we can only speak it, because we've read it in here. So, there's no distinction between the spoken word and the written word in that sense. Alright? It's just that Paul is saying that the sword of the Spirit is the word of God when you speak it against Satan as a final measure if he gets through everything else. See? So, if all else fails, you can't get more blatant than this. Use the dagger, the word of God. And can you see once more, it's one thing he's talking about here. Truth. The truth of the word of God as opposed to the lies and the deception through which Satan will attack you. Alright. So that's the armour. And then he says, pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. Simply saying that all the, I mean, the Lord is always there to be spoken to. Now, the Lord doesn't expect us to be speaking to him and thinking about him all the time. He's not a megalomaniac, you know, and he knows that we've got things to get on with. Not literally saying that one can be, I mean, it's sort of, I've heard people say things that 
even when my mind is occupied with, you know, other things, I'm, I'm praying in the spirit all the time. See, oh, ha, ha. Well, let me tell you, that may or may well be true, but it's simple as this. If it's true for them, it's true for me as well. I don't know how to pray in my spirit when my mind is doing something else. Now, if anyone can tell me, please do. I mean, it's just finally Christian jargon, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing spiritual about praying all the time. In fact, a couple of weeks back, do you remember, we saw the example in the Bible when old Joshua was praying precisely when he shouldn't have been, you see. So when Paul says pray at all times, he's not saying that life is continuously, you wake up in the morning, start praying, and you finish when you go to bed. I mean, some Christians talk as if that's what they're aiming for. Well, good luck to them, you know. I mean, I've got work to do, you know. I mean, sorry about that. Um, you know, so, but obviously the whole time we are, I mean, the Lord is with us all the time. Even when we're not thinking about him, he's thinking about us. That's nice to know. And of course the Holy Spirit is always working in us in that sense, way below a conscious level. But what Paul is saying quite, is quite simply, look, at all times, when Satan's attacking, make sure you're crying out to the Lord. When Satan attacks, cry out to the Lord. Why? Well, because you've got to be strong in the strength of his might. Not, oh, here comes Satan, right, flex my spiritual muscles. No, it's, Christ, it's, it's, it's literally letting the Lord flex his through you. Can you see that? So therefore pray at all time, alright, with all prayer and supplication. Basically, help is what that means. When Satan's attacking, help. See, one of the first prayers I ever learned that, help. Okay, so therefore what you've got here is quite simply, Paul is dealing with, the, with an aspect of the Christian life. In some passages he deals with marriage. That is an aspect of the Christian life. Some passages he deals with children. That is one aspect of the Christian life. Some passages he deals with how you should be at work. That is an aspect of the Christian life. But the aspect of the Christian life Paul is dealing with here is the means whereby Satan tries to knock you down from standing in Christ mode, alright? <laughs> the way in which Satan tries to knock you down by attacking you personally. And the method that Satan uses is deceit and lies. Therefore, our defense against his deceit and his lies is by standing against it with the truth of the Word of God and faith in that truth. Faith in that truth. I mean, it won't be an awful lot of good if Satan's attacking you about something. And I mean, I'm not talking about demons flying at you, you know, out of cupboards. I mean, okay, in very extreme circumstances that can happen. We're just talking about the day-to-day -day evil spirits all around you all the time trying to get your mind off of Jesus and onto sin, onto yourself, okay? That's what we're talking about. You know, I mean, the whole of, you know, sort of everything is permeated, you know, with these, you know, little presences. And remember, evil spirits don't have bodies. You know, they're kind of, you know, 
there. All the time influencing people. That's what we're talking about. All the time influencing us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to do what we want rather than what God wants, to believe what he suggests rather than what God has said is true. And Paul is simply saying, this is the way that you stand against it. It's as simple as that. So it's just one diamond here, there's just one thing he's aiming at, but in doing so, he's coming at it from all the different angles, and because he's chained to a Roman soldier, he thinks, oh, that's a good idea, yeah, that, that, that says it nicely. So he simply takes the armour of a Roman soldier and he uses it to illustrate the different, you know, kind the um, the facets of this diamond of resisting Satan as he comes against us using lies and deceit. So it's that area of the Christian life that Paul is dealing with here and not any other area, you know. Say there are other areas of warfare against Satan, but they are not the area that Paul is here dealing with in this particular passage. So I, I, I hope that answers your question, George. It does. Jolly good. I'm glad about that. Whew.